Welcome to the Robert Hunt Financial Market Update. Where the city, um... <laughs> Where the city listens and we give the truth. Isn't that right, Bob? Mm-hmm. Three articles, as usual. We are actually going to look at millennials on better track for retirement than boomers and Gen X. That's right. Our favorite generation to speak ill of, the millennial generation, is doing better, they say. We'll have to investigate and see why. Lessons abound. We will then look at the ability to invest in Shrek. Oh, that's right. You can now invest in Shrek Music Rights, the same place you can buy stocks. Another Wall Street Journal article will delve into that world. And then in closing, we are going to look at WeWork, the office sharing platform where you can go in and get a hot desk and their investment, what has happened to it over the years. Uh, an article came out where the stock plunged 23% in a day following withheld interest payments. So at the top here, Wall Street Journal, this is by Ann Turgeson, one of my favorite journalists at the Wall Street Journal. Headline, millennials are on better track for retirement than Boomer Gen X. Making saving for retirement the default option proves to be a boon for nest eggs. So this is what's happening. This article just confirms so much to me. Isn't it lovely when you have this idea of why something happens and then an article comes in and affirms your idea? Don't we love that? It's a lot more difficult when the data does not affirm what we believe. But Vanguard has this great data. And Vanguard is saying that, wow, millennials will actually be in a place where they can replace about 60% of their pre-retirement income with Social Security and other sources like 401ks and IRAs, whereas Gen Xers and the youngest baby boomers... They're only going to be good for about half their paychecks. Now, the, the whole thesis behind this is like, well, why? I'm not sure the millennials are known for just having copious amounts of self-control relative to other generations. Let's dig in. What happened is these companies started defaulting their employees into 401k plans. Okay. So it used to be you show up at a company and there was no more pension, which would have been a default for a lot of these folks. And in the early days of the 401k, there was no default for enrollment. They would offer it to you. But as a, a younger uh, Gen X or a baby boomer, you might say, you know, I'll get to this later. I won't have to do this today. Well, what, what ends up happening is you just never get to it. So <clears throat> this is great data. Vanguard has these 401k services they provide. They have a 1,700 employers that use this about 60% currently auto-enroll their new hires. Okay, so uh, Vanguard's 401k service, 1,700 employers, about 60% automatically enroll the new hires. That's up from 10% in 2006. So, whoa, that's a big jump. So in 2006, only 10% of these companies were auto-enrolling you. Now it's up to 60 and I know this is going to be tough to hear for all you people that are always bashing Congress and people passing new laws and the government can't do anything right. Well, Congress passed a law in 2006 encouraging folks to do this. And now it's up at 60%. So let's, let's applaud the good of the civil magistrate 
and let's be willing to denounce the civil magistrate when they do something poor. But in this instance, let us applaud the civil magistrate. It's kind of a relief, isn't it? So there's a story here of a one Kenneth Adams that graduated from college in 2012. He worked as an engineer in a tech company, and his employer auto-enrolled him. He said he wasn't thinking about retirement at all. The Austin, Texas resident explained that must be a suburb of College Station. I'm not familiar. They sent me this letter saying they were going to auto-enroll me, and I said, okay, I'll do it. Do what it says to do. So his, what's happening, too, is these, these, these employers are auto-increasing your contributions. So now he's up to, I think, 12%. This, uh, Mr. Adams says, there's not that much financial education in college, which is why automatic enrollment is helpful. Gives you a default savings option until you educate yourself on what the 401k can do for you. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. So to me, this is just a great example of the behavior gap that exists in, in personal finance and investing. And what can we learn from this? Well, we can set up little systems ourselves. For one, if you are an employer, and they do offer it, just sign up. It's anytime we can have background music that we don't have to mess with, it just happens without us doing anything, it's all to the good. So an auto-enroll in a 401k, all to the good. And it does make you lament for those generations that didn't have this. It seems like we, we had this gap in this country where the pensions went away and the 401ks weren't popular yet. And so... From my eyes, that's why I see there's a real gap for certain folks for retirement. So systems are good. Automatic's good. You can always opt out, but uh, I thought that was a great article. And then you can now invest in Shrek Music Rights, the same place you buy stocks. So they call this the public platform. Hmm, this is by an article by Hannah Miao. The public platform offers everyday investors a slice of, Sh a slice of Shrek catalog with quarterly payouts. This caught my eye. So the article explains, while royalty payments fluctuate depending on content consumption, the Shrek composition rights generated an annual dividend yield above 8% in 2022 and 2021. And let's work on our definitions a bit. If you invested a dollar, you got 8 cents in 2021 and 2022. 8 cents in 2021, 8 cents in 2022. So... <clears throat> That's how it works. Now, anytime these interesting asset classes are made available, it's very tempting for you and for me to go out there and be able to tell our friends, hey, <clears throat> we now get a, um, a slice of Shrek. So every time the way these royalties work is when a song is played or it's used in, um, in a movie or uh, some other venue, a royalty is paid because it's a song that, that you now have the rights to. So this group public as a intermediary, it's doing an initial offering of uh, 88,970 shares for 10 bucks a piece. The entity bought a portion of the Shrek music rights from an investor who purchased it on royalty exchange, which is a marketplace. And what I thought when I read this article is, oh wow, this is neat. Like what a fun, um, stocking stuff or if you could you know put 10 bucks in it and then if someone had a particular album they liked you could give it to them and then they'd make a little money each year and it kind of teaches them investing and helps them see that wow there's <clears throat> a way to earn money passively from these songs and of course you read deeper and there are 50,000 cuts 
in terms of the fees, which, okay, they should make something. Um, this intermediary public takes a 2.4% cut from the money raised from this initial offering of the Shrek. And then for each royalty payment, they charge 5% for services like collecting the revenue, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and then there's another 5% for these additional services like accounting and tax work and all the rest. And um, their platform offers a ton of other things as well. Something... You know, the, the warning on this is it's fun. So we should always be suspicious of an investment that sounds fun. Why? Typically means we're going to com be competing with a bunch of other people that think it's fun. And it will not be as remunerative or profitable as it should be. I'm generally interested in investing that is not fun. Because I know that it will be probably more profitable than the fun investing. And then... You just don't know how these things go wrong. So unless you're a music royalty expert, and I'm not, so I couldn't even tell you 10 different ways it could go wrong, but I know from being ignorant that it, at least I don't know. I don't know when these rights would ever go away or what happened to other similar movies that lost their influence and in the culture. Certainly 100 years from now, it's tough to imagine Shrek having that lasting power. Forgive me all the Shrek fans out there. I know you may think it's a timeless classic, a living work, as Charlotte Mason once said, that Shrek would stand the test of time. I am suspicious. And therefore, I can't forecast those cash flows very well. You always want to be able to forecast and be able to figure out, well, if I pay X, will I get these cash payments? They could drive in five years. I don't know. Particularly in the era of artificial intelligence, what will happen with... So let's be willing to stick with the simple. Or, I suppose this is a legitimate investing opportunity for those who have spent years becoming experts. That's not me. That's probably not you. So let's not be the bag holder that I think many of these investors will be. It is my suspicion that they will be buying at the top. If all these other professional music royalty folks passed on Shrek at this price and this intermediary is selling it to you with a cut of the proceeds and a fee every year, it's probable this isn't the best thing in the world. So uh, be willing to stick with the simple or be willing to pay the price to understand an industry so well that you know how the profitability works, how it actually makes money, what the risks are. I don't. And then in closing, our final article, um, this is a Dow Jones Newswire by Denny Jacob. We work. That's right. We work the office sharing platform plunge on October 3rd, 23% following withheld interest payments. So this means they owed money but did not pay it. <clears throat> the, the article explains the stock, which is down 96% on the year, is on pace for a new all-time low. The New York-based co-working company said in a regulatory filing that it owed about $37.3 million in cash and about $57.9 million payable on payment in kind notes to lenders. WeWork has a 30-day grace period, yada, yada, yada. WeWork is saying they're not making these payments so that they can uh, maintain liquidity, which is a nice way of saying we have no money and we want to ensure with the little we have left... We don't give to you. So 
I, I felt this article merited our evaluation because it is tempting as investors to listen to the anecdote of the home runs. Doubtless you've heard the phrase at the water cooler or the family Christmas party, I invested in X and that's just been the greatest thing I've ever done. I recall being at a family Christmas party and a distant relative in passing just talking about how they invested in Apple in like some crazy year that surpassed belief. It was like Apple in like 96 or something, 93. I thought, oh, well, of course, it's incredible. Um, what they didn't share that I'm sure was the case is I bet they weren't all that good. But those are the only ones they shared. Those are, those are the only ones I heard. As, as an investor, we can oftentimes trick ourselves, deceive ourselves into thinking, well, that may, it must be easy to just pick these companies. 40 years later, you wake up and you're up 50 times your initial investment. Not so. Not so. And by highlighting a company like WeWork, who it was prophesied by many CNBC soothsayer that this was the next big thing for us to look soberly in the face of the reality, which says, oh, well, that didn't happen. And why not? Well, could could be a ton of reasons. What's important for you, investor, is that we are willing to admit our own ignorance. So WeWork was once worth $47 billion. It hovers near zero. I could not have predicted it would go to zero. I actually went into a number of WeWorks and thought the product was compelling. I actually looked around and thought, well, this is pretty cool. I didn't do any research into what they were paying. Uh, SoftBank, this very large uh, investor out of Japan, does a ton of due diligence. It put a ton of money into this company. And they're now coming back and saying, that was a foolish investment. The private valuation is high as $47 billion. They, they even doubled down uh, in 2020, saying, well, maybe it's only worth $3 billion, or maybe it's only worth $8 billion. So this happened kind of year after year, these slow down rounds, as they call them, where they just keep becoming worth less and less and less. So as an investor, how would we have avoided something like this? Well, there's a sense where these are always optional. So we don't have to engage in individual security selection. So even if you walk into a store and it seems like a great store, the product is great, that is not enough. So Peter Lynch, the famous Fidelity stock picker and head of the Magellan Fund, he would always stress that it was important that you understood the company and its products, that you yourself consume, and I consume them. I think that's a great risk management tool as one of many. What oftentimes I see investors do is they'll, they'll walk into a Bed Bath & Beyond or a WeWork and say, uh, this is great, I'll invest without looking at the finances, without looking at the numbers, without looking at how the model worked. So WeWork's model was always a little risky for those that saw the math where they were engaging in committing long-term to these landlords, these office landlords, and then committing short-term to these tenants. So they're, 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 they call it a duration mismatch. What you want to do in banking or any risk management, you want to match up. Hey, if you 
if you're committing to a five-year term to these office landlords, you want your customers to commit to five-year terms so that you're, you're matched. What WeWork did, which could have worked, no pun intended, was they, they had to commit to these office landlords. These office landlords weren't going to build their space out and do, do a deal for a month with them. They wanted to do a 10-year deal, 20-year deal. What WeWork's customers wanted to do, in large part, just a hot desk or a three-month deal or a one-year deal. Well, if you ever lose a bunch of tenants, you're still, you have all these liabilities with these landlords and you're in trouble. And so it was with WeWork. And so as an investor, we can look at and say, wow, for a $47 billion company to be worth zero, and I'm looking at the stock chart right now, I mean, it's in the last six months, it's down 90%. Last year, it's down 98%. And yeah, it's... From, from its IPO, it's down about 99.5%. So it's, it's basically worth zero. I don't know how I would have known. I think this could easily have worked out. I didn't have the farsightedness to decide, oh, wow, this is a good investment or a bad investment. I didn't know. I thought it was a cool product. Let it be a lesson to us that sometimes really cool products that have backing from institutional investors that are very smart and have a track record of success and whose business model is innovative, can still be zeros. Isn't that a sobering thought? It can still be a zero, and it appears like that's the case. So someone may have invested a billion dollars at their $47 billion valuation, and you know how much that's worth today? Close to nothing. So it just evaporated, poof, in the night. But we don't have to do that, investor. We can keep those costs low and that investing simple and that time horizon long by investing in the most innovative financial product of the 20th century, the index fund. Because that is what's going to give you the best shot on your investing journey. Until next time.